the, then the thing that really sets me off is, well, once we have a vaccine, then everything will go back, back to normal. To normal. Yeah. And I say, you mean like the flu vaccine that's 8% effective? Doesn't work. I catch if, I mean, if I had a brake pad manufacturing company for cars and my brake pads were 8% effective, I would be out of business. George Floyd was not taken out because he was black. George Floyd was taken out because he was owed major drug money by Derek Shaven. So you're making vaccines that are 8% effective for the flu that you have to change every year, which by the way, give most people that take them the flu. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell me that this new, and they can't sue, you can't sue them for this without going through the VAERS court, which is a joke. And you're going to tell me that once we have a untested brand new rush through vaccine, then everything is going to go back to normal. Good luck with that. I'll tell you what, they're going to test it in Africa like they're doing, kill a bunch of Africans, pay them off a thousand dollars per person, which is the maximum that they have to spend if they kill somebody. So they already know that because it's way cheaper to kill them there than kill them here found out what the Chinese Communist Party, the Red Dragon, is doing to these people and have been doing to these people for the last 20 years in China, sending hundreds and thousands of innocent Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghur Muslims, house Christians, and Tibetan Buddhists. Particularly 95% of um, the victims are Falun Gong practitioners to these state-mandated hospitals, concentration camps, death camps, military facilities, uh, military facilities run by the Chinese military at the behest of the, of the highest ranking officials of the Chinese Communist Party to create a, a legal sanctions forced organ harvesting business. All right. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Defender podcast. We are coming to you live the greatest country in the world, deep in the heart of the Lone Star State, Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Paul Aguilar. I really appreciate you guys stopping in for another episode. If you guys are checking us out on YouTube and you aren't already a subscriber, uh, please consider hitting that subscribe button as well as clicking on that thumbs up button and turn on that bell icon so you guys don't miss an episode in the future. Uh, if you guys are trying to catch us on the go, you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as uh, iHeartRadio at Truth Defender Podcast. We'll have all of our links down below to our website, um, as well as links to social media, um, Twitter, Instagram. TikTok is up and running as well for you guys uh, if you want to check us out there. Uh, we'll have locals as well and everything else listed beneath. Uh, if you guys want to send us an email, ask us any kind of questions, if you have any guests or topic recommendations, you can send us an email at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. Our next guest is Mr. Raymond Zemanski, respected scientist, paranormal researcher, author, public speaker. Raymond Zemanski is the leading authority on all things paranormal at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. His award-winning book, Fifty Shades of Grays, Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Beyond, takes you deep inside the top secret base that has been linked to government-recovered aliens and their crashed spacecraft since the 1947 Roswell incident. Without further ado, Mr. Raymond Zemanski, how are you doing, sir? Great. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy week. Obviously, Friday uh, is Friday. Everybody wants to be doing you know, what they want to do, but you're here with us, and so we really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I, I reached out to you, obviously, um, I guess during the week, early last week or early this week. 
Um, I was really interested in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Obviously, we've all heard the stories of what might have gone on there in the past. Maybe, you know, like we mentioned, Roswell, um, the wreckage has always been rumored to have gone there in the past. Um, could you kind of, I guess, lay out for us how you ended up getting to write Pat and how you kind of started there and what, what your job was there? Yeah, sure. Uh, I went to the University of Detroit and I got a Bachelor of Science degree in electrical and electronics engineering, which I got in 1975. Um, I was the president or the grandmaster of the engineering fraternity there called Two Air. So um, I had that going for me. I was a member of the uh, National Honor Society in Electrical Engineering called Ada Kappa Nu. So I, I was not one of those to party and, and I commuted actually. So um, I kept my, my, my nose to the grindstone. And um, in fact, I'm probably in the Guinness World Book of Records as the only college student in the history of America who never missed a single class in five years of going to the university. Right. So I'm sure you can find my name if you can spell it. But um, during that wonderful stretch at the university, they had what was called a cooperative education program. Okay. And Detroit, where I was living at the time, was not a electrical town. It was a mechanical town. So if you're a mechanical engineer or chemical or civil, you got jobs. But uh, electronics really was just coming into its own in the early 70s. So the United States government in the form of the U.S. Air Force saw the future and um, microprocessors were just starting to be thought of and some mini things, you know, the trash 80, those kinds of things were coming along. So they were recruiting students to come down and work at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and myself and um, three other guys that I knew, two in fact, who've become lifelong friends. They were fraternity brothers and we all stood up at each other's weddings and we live like five miles from each other. Sure. Um, we're told, hey, come on, you've got this job and you'll do this co-op thing. And the way it works is you'd go down for like January, February, March, April. So you go down for four months and you would do work study. They would give you a job. You would shadow some senior engineer or mid-level engineer. And then you go back to school for a semester. Then you do another four months of work study. And it kind of helped you see what was out there and maybe give you an idea of where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do afterwards. So when I finished uh, a full 12 months of cooperative education, they offered me a job there. And um, the interesting thing was um, back in 1973 is when I did my first co-op in January of 1973, I was assigned to a GS-11 by the name of Al. And um, one day Al said, hey, look, and I'm going to take you out of our building through the adjoining building into a third building. And that's where the greasy spoon was. And uh, as we stepped into this hangar, he says to me, have you heard about our aliens? Right. So that's like my first week there working as a co-op student. I'm a college guy. I'd only finished like, you know, eight semesters. No, it'd be one, two, three, four semesters, five semesters. And so off I'm, off I'm going and the guy's talking to me about aliens. So when I questioned him, he said, well, there was a crash out West and they brought their craft, uh, their machine, I think he called it. And, the occupants to write Patterson for examination and evaluation. Right. 
which was mind blowing. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's so I, I guess I mean obviously just out of college, I mean how big or how much was were UFOs and aliens like in your world at that time? Had you really cared or paid attention to that kind of thing, or was it just kind of I was yeah. still in college. I was, I was, you know, big on co-eds and, and drinking yeah. a beer or two on the weekend. So uh, for me, it was quite an evaluation. And I was still in college. I didn't graduate till 75. And this is, you know, J- January of 1973. Uh, but I went around and, you know, during that session and other co-op sessions, and of course, during my career there, I, I, you know, get a sense of whom I could talk to. And I go, hey, Al, uh, you know, told me uh, that there were aliens here. And then Doug would go, oh yeah, yeah, we got them in the tunnels. And everyone, as time goes on, you found out that everybody knew about Project Blue Book, which was at Wright-Patterson. And Project Blue Book, for all the listeners who may not know, was supposedly an investigation effort by the Air Force to look into, investigate, actually try to find what was really going on with this phenomenon, but it was really more of a public relations effort to disinterest the public and what was going on. But the entire base was well aware that this investigative unit was there, what they were doing somewhat, and it was lots of coverage. So that connection was known from all bio-based personnel about UFOs. And so when Al was telling me this, I think it was just a mere extension of what he had heard, you know, through the local press and and television, and that about uh, Blue Book and Wright Patterson. Sure. Now, I mean, obviously, for a military base, compartmentalization was huge. Obviously, um, I spent a lot of time in my career with, when I was in the military. I, I had several security clearances during my time, but even at with all of those, it's always like need to know, right? Like you don't need to know what's going on there and in, in this part. You could have all the security clearances you want, but if you're like not a part of that group or whatever, there's like no need for you to know anything. So you can have somebody that's in charge of a department or something. Um, that's all great. You would think they would have access to things, but they just wouldn't. So, I mean, is was that kind of a, like a huge, I mean, obviously it was huge, but how much did you actually have access to, you know, during your time there? Well, people realized that this had to be super top secret, and there were really no expectations that you would be read in, especially a young guy. You know, Project Blue Book ended in 1969, effectively the end of the calendar year. And, you know, I showed up and was told the story in 1973. So it was only four years after Blue Book closed. So there were still, you know, except for the people that retired, there were still thousands that knew about the connection and you know i always tell people the air force would be the worst hide and seek players ever if they allowed a co-op student to uncover a secret that they had a 25-year head start on to bury so um you know people continued to talk about it and i knew people who worked at the foreign technology division where Project Blue Book was hosted. So, you know, you always ask those people, but very carefully. And of course, most of the guys that I knew were like, you know, computer scientists or electrical engineers, you know, they really, if there were aliens, for example, they, you know, would have to be more biologists, physiologists, that sort of thing. But if you think about it, you know, you mentioned something, I I really want to clear this up for the audience. 
there is no doubt that what was recovered at Roswell came to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And how do we know that? Well, Major Jesse Marcel was the guy who was assigned by the, the Roswell Air Force Base, Army Air Force Base commander in July of 1947 to go to um, the Foster Ranch, 70 miles north of uh, Roswell and pick up the, the debris. He was also the same guy that was told, you're gonna escort this to the 8th Army uh, Air Force headquarters in Fort Worth, which he did, and which he later talked all about in a taped interview with Stanton Friedman. And he talked about how they tried to cut, burn, scratch, hammer this material and how it was not of this earth. Then you had, oh, and he also said, the material went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So who would know better than the guy who brought it in? And then the guy who was responsible for shipping it out was Major, was General Thomas DuBose, who was Chief of Staff down there in Fort Worth, which is in your backyard. And that material came in and it was shipped. And in a signed affidavit, which is a legal document, after DuBose, who was a general, after he got out of the Air Force, he signed a legal document and he said, that material went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Whatever that material was, there is no doubt whatsoever that it went to Wright-Patterson. And ironically enough, the first laboratory that would have looked at it would have been the materials laboratory, which in 1947 would have been there for 30 years because it was established in, in 1917. So being an aerospace materials laboratory, it would have been flown in. And you know, the pieces, they weren't massive. Thousands of pieces were collected and they were only two inches by three inches. And the biggest piece anyone ever documented was about two foot by three foot. So you could bring this in in a box or a briefcase, just walk it into the materials directorate, meet with the director and go, hey, we need some of your help. And we can't tell you what this is because we don't know. We can't tell you where we got it because that's secret. But get your guys to get their machines and all their knowledge. And we got plenty of this stuff. So do what you need to do and characterize it. You know, if you can do an elemental analysis on it, but tell us what you know about it because we think this is special material. Right. So that would have been done all, done all at Wright-Patterson. Yeah. I mean, even if it was brought in in bigger cases, you know, like we mentioned, need to know is extremely important. I mean, you even had instances of Senator Goldwater trying to get access to all that information and even he was turned down, um, you know, so like it, it wouldn't matter if it was just somebody working in a lab somewhere, like somebody that just worked on the base. I mean, they obviously would definitely not have a chance to get in there. I mean, it would, it, it would just be one of those things. It's, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, so, I mean, I've flown into Wright Pat maybe twice, I think in my time. I've never been into any of the buildings, like just like on the tarmac, you know, whatever. But um, say something were to come in that was big, that in in a sense that it was like alien material, would there be kind of a buzz around base? Would, would people know if something were to come in like that? I mean, obviously. Uh, uh, no, no, absolutely not. And that would be up to the people whose job it was to handle it. Again, if you think about the Roswell crash wreckage, and then I'll talk about the aliens in just a minute. Sure. The material was small, and they had, do you know what a carry-all is? Sure. It's a military, right. It's a, it's a big truck, kind of a jeepy thing. Well, 
both um, Marcel and his cohort, another intelligence officer from uh, Roswell Army Airfield, they each filled a carry-all of that material. They collected thousands of pieces and brought it back, and they showed it to Colonel Blanchard, who was the base commander. And uh, you know, Blanchard declared it a crash disc, and the world went crazy. But all that material, again, there were so there were thousands. That's what Marcel said: thousands and thousands of pieces. And remember, he took some of that home with him for a while, and he showed it to his son. And you know that story went on. His son went to his grave. Doctor Marcel went to his grave saying. I saw it. I saw the stuff on it and, you know, the, the hieroglyphics and whatever. So the, there, there, when, when Thomas, let me put this in perspective, it would have been guarded so well that Thomas DuBose went on record when he signed the affidavit and you can find his affidavit online. Uh, there was a general who was the deputy commander of SAC. I think it was his name was LeMay. And again, look online, you'll find it. In the affidavit, he said that LeMay, who was his boss in Washington, D.C., told him this classification of what you're doing right now is more important than the atomic bomb. So everybody in that chain of command was sworn to secrecy. And so no buzz would have entailed. And the same thing, you know, there would have been a buzz if they needed a C5 and they're bringing these cases off that are as big as 707s. No, it's just simply a briefcase. Could have been a guy in plain clothes. Uh, somebody just nondescript. They make a few phone calls. They say, hey, we're coming in. We got some material. So nobody knows to the last minute, and even, even through the whole process, whoever brought the material in was under no obligation to tell the director that this is top secret, and I'm sure they would have. But you need just needed the Secretary of the Air Force to call that lab guy and go, look at, I got some guys coming in, some stuff fell off the truck, you're going to evaluate it. When it's all over, they're going to swear you to secrecy, and you're never going to talk about it again. And you're not going to write a tech report except one copy for them. So really, you know, and 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 the the research and the books and everything show that that secret didn't come out for 30 years that there was even a Roswell, a real recovery, did not come out until 1978. So you've got 31 years in between. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, nobody would know. There's a lot of stuff that goes on like that. But nobody um, would know. And that was just small yeah. stuff. You could move it around in a briefcase. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense. It's, um, we have a question here from one of our viewers, Ray. He asked, if you ever met an individual by the name of Clifford Stone? Um, I know of Clifford Stone and I've heard some of his stories and I've never researched them. I haven't read any of his stuff, uh, but I know he's a former Air Force guy and he makes uh, all these claims. But I, I I can't render any kind of opinion on his work. I, I haven't studied it whatsoever. Sure, sure. Oh, yeah. Just, he's just a name out there just you yeah. know, doing talks on, on the, on the uh, UFO cocktail circuit. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So that's, I, I think I, I never heard the name, but I, I think now that you mentioned that, I think I had heard something of, of him, like, you know, in passing before, but um, yeah. So I want to get to kind of like, you know, so you get to the base and you start out, L lets you know that there's aliens, you know, things like that. Now, 
you mentioned that everybody had always spoken about they were in the tunnels, you know, like in the tunnels. Did that right. ever, did that ever, did like anything ever come out of that? Did you ever see the tunnels or anything like there that? Are tu- there are tunnels all over the base and people should not be surprised by that. Sure. Um, for example, we have a university here called Wright State University where I did my graduate work in computer engineering and the entire campus, every building, is connected to every other building through a series of tunnels. And the, the reason is, is during, you know, we get some nasty ice storms through here as well as you guys do. And uh, it's great because you, you can go in and all the classes are in session. You step onto campus in a snowstorm and you go, oh my God, there's not a soul here. Well, they're all underground. They're in the tunnels. Uh-huh. Well, that kind of thing happens at Wright Path. There are buildings that have uh, tunnels for, uh, um, heat ducts and electricity and those types of things, the utilities. There are some buildings that are across uh, like a busy street from each other and there are connecting tunnels underneath and in those hallways of those tunnels are vaults. Nobody should be surprised that a base that does super top secret work has tunnels and has vaults and that sort of thing. That can't be a surprise. Now, whether or not there's aliens in there, I'll be honest with you and your audience. I'm a thousand percent sure that whatever crashed in Roswell, the materials, the wreckage came to Wright Patterson of that. There was no doubt, but I've always been a little bit squishy on the recovery of aliens. And here's why the testimony, the witness testimony on aliens you don't find a lot of strong stuff from a military member. It's always, you know, Frankie Rowe, whose uncle was the, the you know, a fireman, uh, the guy who, who you know, uh, was the, um, uh, he, he was the undertaker, uh, you know, a guy in the hospital, but they're all civilians. Whereas with the crash wreckage, you have got a, a general who has no obligation nor, nor no uh, gain by admitting that the, the materials he handled and he said were otherworldly went the right path. The same thing with Jesse Marcel, but neither of those mentioned anything about alien bodies. And I can tell you, if there were alien bodies on that same airplane with Jesse Marcel, he'd have said something about that in 1978, but he never did. He said, I, alien bodies uh, same thing with with uh, the general so for me i'm unconvinced that alien bodies were recovered in washington not saying it's not possible but there's just not that same strong story and one other point some of the people who wrote the books on roswell and i'm exempting stanton friedman from this list in a lot of their other books they were caught in lies and fabrications And despite the fact that a lot of their stuff was true, the fact that they fabricated stuff and were later outed on it puts all of their research, in my opinion, in question. Right. Yeah, it's kind of rough. I mean, I I know personally speaking with other members in the military and things like that, it's it's, it's hard to, to, to kind of pry anything out of them. I mean, you have a lot of stuff that, that they have to be responsible for, like other military members, their 
careers or families. They don't want to lose their pensions. They don't want to lose their jobs, especially if they're commissioned. Um, even a service member that's that's been in, that's an enlisted member that's been in like more than 10 years, obviously they're going career, but um, there's just nobody willing to kind of stick their neck out for anything really, unless there's something to gain from it, which, you know, for the most part, there isn't. Um, yeah, it's, it's rough, but I mean, I, I heard you speak about previously the uh, foreign technology division, which was labeled as that back then. Now it's NASIC. Um, what kind of role did they play on the base? Like what were the things that they were handling at that time? Well, NASIC and you know, formerly FTD, they were responsible for collecting and evaluating any kind of weaponry from our adversary adversaries so that we could prepare to defend against them or defeat them or whatever we do with it. So anything that fell from the sky that we couldn't readily identify, it was their job to um, collect it. And then for the most part, they really didn't have uh, in-house experts, right. maybe a, a photo expert, you know, photoshops. But what they did is, is they would take it to a place like the materials laboratory or the other laboratories, which were on the other side of the base. Right. Patterson originally had four different geographical spaces despite the fact that they all abutted each other or were across a major road from each other you had a b c and d then up until a couple of years ago you had a b and c and now it's only a and b where a is like the operational side that's where ftd was strangely but the tech side where all the labs were and all the development stuff and all the engineering types were in area B. So if FTD found something like the crash wreckage and it went to Wright-Patterson, it would have been taken via FTD, would have made a stop there logically and then gone on to the materials directorate uh, because FTD would go, oh, well, we know a guy uh, who's expert in, in uh, metallic materials. And so we'll start with him because we want to limit the people who know about this evaluation. That said, because there is no record of that material coming on base and what happened to it, the people in Washington, D.C. may have already known about the materials directorate and cut FTD out of the loop because that's less people that know about it. And so they would have just they could have just gone, hey, we're high powered. We got a high powered guy playing suits, knock on the door. Hey, you're the lab director, materials directorate pop open a suitcase and go, we've been sent here by the Secretary of the Air Force. Here's our letter of introduction. And by the way, don't tell FTD about this because they're a bunch of clowns. And that is that is entirely possible. The, the fewer people who know, the better. Yeah, it's definitely the fewer, the better. Um, yeah, so like, kind of curious as to, I mean, obviously you mentioned that when you started working there, you know, obviously UFOs and aliens were the furthest thing from your mind at that time. I mean, you hear these stories first week that you're there. Over time, did you start seeing, I guess, proof that kind of starts leading you to believe in UFOs or like in aliens? Um, even to up to this point, was there any kind of like strong evidence that you ever saw that would, would, you would be like, oh, well, there's actually 
aliens or there's actually other creatures that are coming from another world? Was there anything like that? Well, I got interested in the topic and, you know, for the first couple of years after I, I got on base, it was like, oh, an interesting thing to talk to people that, I don't know, they identified themselves somehow with a statement. You go, oh, well, I can talk to them about UFOs. You know, then you raise a family, you have kids, you're coaching, mm-hmm. you're traveling, that sort of thing. But then 1997 rolls around and um, the Phoenix lights happen. Okay. And I had a, a contractor, a contract with Arizona State University. Among many contracts, I had maybe five or six I was managing at the time. Sure. And they were all working on problems that were related. Uh, and we used to meet quarterly as a big team. But I had a guy there. And then when that happened, you know, I, I kind of snooped around on one of my, my trips down there and, you know, talked to people about what had happened and that sort of thing. And so that really got me back to reading books and articles and doing research and, you know, the internet comes along and now you've got all this stuff going on where you can, uh, you know, do instant searches and, you know, it's just a a wonderful thing rather than going to the library. Uh, And then in about 2008, uh, as I was traveling, I uh, got more into it and I started to do the boots on the ground thing where... I wanted to find out if there was anything to this UFO thing at all, because I'd been there for 30 some years and I heard all this stuff about UFOs and extraterrestrials. And so I started with the premise that right in the middle, I don't care if there's UFOs or there are no UFOs. I just wanted to go, is there some truth to this? So I picked cases as time went along for me to jump into. And I went to these locations and I tried to find people who were witnesses or knew witnesses or knew the stories. And I studied these things intently. And that was the Exeter, uh, September of 1965. Uh, it was um, Travis Walton uh, case and it was the Rendlesham case. Right. And in each instance, for example, I went to Exeter and I went to the site where Norman Muscarello and the two officers, Hunt and Bertrand, stood in a field and a 90-foot UFO hovered 100 feet over their heads. And this was documented in the book called Incident at Exeter. Well, it turns out that when I went looking for people, now this is 2008, the thing happened in 1965, I found the son okay. of the man who owned the house and the field in which those people were standing in. And Arthur uh, Russell was his name. His father, Clyde, owned the house. And Clyde was made famous in the book Incident at Exeter by John Fuller. So I got to talk to Arthur. Arthur, And Arthur introduced me to a neighbor who owned the adjoining farm and was able to corroborate a story that was put forth by the officers at Norman that they heard the horses kicking in their stalls that night when the UFO was hovering. So I was able to actually talk to the guy who owned that paddock in which those horses were. And he told me, yes, they had destroyed. They, they just were going nuts in there because it, whatever the UFO was emitting, maybe some, you know, high pitch sound. So I did that for um, Exeter. I uh, talked to Colonel Halt and John Burroughs for um, the Rendlesham incident. And I spent an afternoon and evening with Travis Walton at the site of his abduction. 
So I talked to all the firsthand witnesses. And then I went to Rendlesham. I flew to England and I went to, to the Air Force Base and I did my snooping around and I talked to people and I talked to folks who claimed that, you know, they were witness to one thing or another. So my starting in the middle and not caring which way the needle went, turns out that the more I investigated, the more the needle kept going, oh man, there was something here or that means there's a lot of crazy people in this world so the deeper i dug the more evidence i found that there's something going on here right uh yeah it's it's definitely um, always better to kind of figure it out yourself on your own um, you just sometimes you have a lot of people that want to believe in it and they just want to believe in it so much that you know they find ufos and everything or they find aliens and everything but when you kind of experience it for yourself um, I've never had any kind of experience with UFOs or, or anything like that. Um, it, would, it would be nice to see one, but it's, it's just never happened. But I mean, another one of the topics that that's obviously big. Um, I remember you mentioned that you had an experience with what you thought was a man in black. Could you kind of go over that whole story again for us? Oh yeah, this, this is fun. I'm, I'm playing golf at um, a golf course that's on the Air Force Base on Wright-Patterson and the 10th hole parallels the FTD campus. Okay. And on the side of the golf course that is closest is a parking lot that the, the members, you know, that the FTD personnel park in. And one day, there was a gentleman out there. It was pretty hot. It was like late May. And when we get into late May in Dayton, it can get really, really muggy and hot. We're, you know, generally in the mid 80s and we could have 75% humidity. So it can get nasty. So I see this guy um, out there and um, I strike up a conversation. He is unusually dressed because that time of year, nobody would go out in black clothes and a black hat you just, you just wouldn't do it. You would leave your head inside. So I strike up the conversation with the guy and um, mentioned to him that, uh, hey, you know, you're standing outside of an intelligence building and you're obviously an intelligence guy of some sort, but you look just like a man in black. And suddenly I'm thinking, you know, they got to hang out somewhere during the day. But I told him, I said, man, you just, you know, you're striking me as a man in black. And I tried to strike a deal with him, you know, take his photo and that sort of thing. And of course, he didn't want to hear it. He said, that's a pretty bad idea. But that was a, that was my first uh, man in black encounter. And I, I actually wound up having two conversations with him. I, I tried to convince him again to let me take his photo. And he was like, no, I, I don't think so. Uh, so that, that was the one that I wrote about in the book. And he was out there having a smoke. And when I um, told him, I said, in the second meeting, I said, the thing that really struck me is it's hot out. And now we're like another four weeks later. So it's even hotter. I said, why are you wearing that hat? Now he's standing in the shade because there's trees all around that area. And he takes his hat off as if to like appease me and make me feel better about this thing. Like, well, I'll show you that I'm not a man in black. And then he's got this strange olive skin. Hmm. And I yeah. thought, man, 
if you thought taking your hat off was going to make me feel better, it didn't. <laughs> it even made me more suspicious because, you know, the last time I saw a, a complexion like that was in Italy. Okay. So, so you know, he just had that, that skin tone. So it was really strange. And, and that was my on-base um, encounter with, um, you know, somebody who could be the men in black. Was, was there, I guess, ever talk from, I guess, other people you worked with or other people on the base that, that there were like actual men in black on the base or anything like that, like in passing, was, was that ever anything? Right. Uh, some guy um, told me, he read my book yeah. and my email address is in the back of the book. So he sent me an email and he said, um, I want to let you know that I work in FTD and I saw the guy that you were talking about. And he <laughs> said, he, he said, yeah, he's scary. And he dresses like that every day hmm. every day and i thought all right like if you're going to put somebody on you do that for a week maybe and people you know they grin and they wink wink you but he goes every day this guy is dressing like a man in black and i go well i rest my case man <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well i mean it's if he was if he was playing a trick on everybody he's extremely committed to that he was uh, committed that's the word yeah, was, years and years. <laughs> he was committed. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Or maybe it gets some attention that he doesn't otherwise garner. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean it, I guess it it's fun to think. Hopefully he's not screwing around with everybody, but um you know, <laughs> actually met one. But yeah, I mean, that's a cool story. It's it's kind of a I mean you obviously only hear stories and you don't really hear too many stories about them, but um you know, obviously they show up wearing the suit and the hats maybe like like a big trench coat or whatever but um you know besides that yeah that's extremely weird um i remember one of the things also you had discussed was the fact that everybody always talks about hangar 18 and like all these hangars where they have you know i guess crafts inside i mean i maybe at one point there's actually been warehouses that maybe they have like a 18 on the outside or something but was there any kind of truth to any of those things like that? I think Hangar 18 is a conceptual idea that people can just relate to because there's over 600 buildings on base. Wow. You know, it's spread out over 8,000 acres. And there are a lot of hangar-looking buildings. Uh, mostly they're hangars. That's why. Uh, none actually have 18 on it per se. But numbers on those buildings can and do change like they'll put up they'll refurbish it repaint a building and a new organization will move in they'll gut it put new offices in and they'll remember the building the, the original building i worked in uh was building 22 that's no longer the number it's been renumbered yeah. so it's possible that in the past there was but i think it's just a concept um I, I actually do a whole talk about searching, hunting for Hangar 18, and I really don't want to get into that now. Uh, sure. You might be able to find uh, a former interview or something that I did out there that that does that. But I think it was just a um, uh, just a, a concept. And again, you know, recall the Roswell crash wreckage description. It's small stuff, two inches by three inches. 
you don't need a hanger. And, right. and of course, you wouldn't keep it in a hanger, maybe overnight. Let's say it got laid and you couldn't get into the materials directorate or the other labs there to have your, you know, start your process. So, you know, you pull in that little uh, bomber, the B-29, that's got a couple of suitcases in it. You pull it into the hangar for, say, storage overnight. You know, you lock it up in the morning. You come back, you know, you get the stuff out and you walk it or, you know, somebody escorts you to the next building. So hangers aren't required. And as far as the alien thing, you know, again, supposedly, and again, I'm squishy on the whole alien thing, you know, these things required um, child caskets. And, mm. and that's like four foot or six foot or whatever. So they're pretty small. Again, you could put them in an office space. You don't really need a hanger for that. Right. And, and, and I think, I think it's the, a red herring. Hanger 18 is pretty much a red herring. And that's, that's really all I could say for now because no one's really identified it. And I have great ideas, but it's beyond the scope of, of this hour. Right, right. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I guess that would kind of fall along the lines as well. I mean, earlier I mentioned Barry Goldwater. Um, he had tried to get access and he had tried to get access specifically to the Blue Room as well, but that kind of fall in the same area as well. It's just kind of a rumor. Or maybe somebody had heard something about it as well. You know, it, it could be just a symbolic thing. You know, they right. call it the blue room. You know, it's a wink, wink. You know, I'm going to the blue room and yeah. nobody's supposed to know what that is. But what you would probably have, you know, in FTD would be pencil pushers who are waiting for the report to come back from the labs. Because, again, at that time, you know, early on in 47, they were just the collectors. And they they had limited scientific capabilities, you know, within the building, but the base had all those other labs going for them, you know, propulsion uh, lab and and, uh, uh, materials directorate and human factors and whatever else they had back then. So they would have consulted them as the experts and, you know, materials lab is the guy They're They're the guys who would have done it. And somewhere deep in their bowels, you know, is buried that 1947 Roswell report. I know it is. I feel it in my bones, but whether it's going to ever see the light of day, it's another question. Yeah, it's so, I mean, obviously the base has expanded a lot since you first started there up until now. Um, Like you mentioned, there's always somebody that's moving in or out. Um, You said how many buildings were on there? Over 600. Yeah. Okay. So it's, I mean, the base has obviously been famous for like UFOs and stories of UFOs and aliens things like that. But I mean, was there ever anything else that you had heard of that wasn't related to like any of those topics that kind of really stuck out in your mind at that time or anything like that? Uh, regarding what? Um, I mean, I mean, we've all, I mean, I've obviously heard stories that there's, there's like an Air Force Museum there that's supposedly haunted or like any kind of like weird oh. craziness, things like oh, that. Oh, that's a great question. That's, that's a great question. First of all, the Air Force Museum is there uh, no, I've never heard it's haunted. However, that said, um, years ago when the ghost hunters and the, the year, particular year escapes me, but um, the the ghost hunters, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the guys, they were um, called uh, TAPS, the right, Atlantic right. Paranormal. Okay, the guys are, you know, mega known for this stuff. They came and did a uh, three-night investigation on the base in three different buildings, four actually, I think they did four buildings. And 
one of the buildings is building 219. And that was one of the buildings that they didn't get any readings. But in 1947, building 219 was the regional hospital on the base. And it's only seconds by a car, a mere less than a minute from the flight line and the hangars. So if a plane came in with aliens, they would have checked in through building 219 because it was the hospital and they would have had doctors and nurses and equipment and they could bring guys on shift work. Come on in, let's bring it in at night. No one's going to see the little caskets coming in. That building is reputedly haunted and there are not only newspaper articles in the Air Force Base's own newspaper that document high-ranking military and high-ranking civilian and medical personnel as seeing apparitions, hearing disembodied voices. Um, We could go on for another whole show about this, but I discovered the woman who was quoted in the newspaper article, which was printed like in 1997. She worked there every night. She was a cleaning lady. I found that cleaning lady's granddaughter. And when I interviewed her, she told me she used to go in with her grandmother almost every night and play around the building with her friend while her grandmother did her rounds. And that young girl had experiences. So I was able to find a witness who corroborated what her grandmother had told the reporter when they wrote the story in the base newspaper about the building she worked in. And it was just the most awesome uh, thing. And I actually brought this uh, woman on. Now she's grown and has children. I brought her on a couple of shows and we did a haunted right pad thing. And it was just super cool because she was a witness and she not only corroborated stuff that her grandmother, because I had the articles and I let her read it, but she had stuff happening to her and her friend, which went on beyond what had happened to her grandmother. So yeah, there has been some, uh, and there's two other buildings that the ghost hunters found uh, evidence of uh, it being uh, haunted. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely, and I always wondered, I mean, I used to work during my time when I was in the military back in the day, I used to work on a, I guess, like a new house, what they would call it. So they would train submariners and such. So we had, you know, like a bunch of nuclear reactors and things like that. Um, there's only two of them in the whole country. One of them is down in Charleston, South Carolina, and then the other one's up in New York, somewhere like in closer to Boston, I think, um, somewhere in that area. But um, it was kind of a weird place, um, considering that it was a military base, but it was like out in the middle of the woods, and they'd always hear stories about things that all kinds of people would see. And I'd always wondered if it was maybe related to the fact that we were so close to nuclear reactors, um, obviously um, being on an Air Force base, if there ever was any kind of spaceships or anything like that that were brought in, obviously they'd, they'd have like radiation leaking off of them that could cause, you know, like for other people to see things or experience things. I mean, um, I had always kind of been on that kind of side that maybe that was the case, but um, if there ever was any kind of alien spaceships, I mean, I'm sure it, it would cause 
hallucinations and people that work there, you know, cause for them to see things. Um, was there ever kind of incident, incidences, obviously they had a hospital on the base, but um, where you would hear stories of people falling ill or anything like that? It's like... that that Those stories never reached me, but, you know, at one time there was a um, nuclear reactor on the base, a small nuclear reactor. And if you uh, look at certain databases, like I would recommend you go to the National UFO Reporting Center, the New Fork one, um, and there are uh, entries in there about UFOs being spotted over Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So if you go to New Fork, maybe type in Wright-Pat or Dayton, you know, it'll get you there. But I think you can do a direct... uh, query and and find a right path uh but those were those were i don't think they're modern settings i think they were more like in the 50s maybe the 60s and i can't remember the exact dates that the nuclear reactor was uh active but it was being used uh in a uh, research program and then it was shut down and mothballed and you know they filled it with concrete and whatever else they do to insulate it the building is still there and it's still, you know, being monitored for leakages and all that stuff. But um, not that there is any, but there was that nuclear presence at Wright-Patterson, which if the dates coincide, you know, might might be reason for them to visit. And, you know, there was nuclear weapons stored at Wright-Patterson. That's not a secret. Sure. Uh, there were many, for many years, we had SAC there and the nuclear, there was a nuclear storage facility, which is gone. But that would be give the the visitors uh, a reason to come give us a look-see as they have all over the country and all over the world. Sure. Yeah. I was just going to come up with that as well. It's, it, it's, it's always, I guess, kind of one of those cases you hear stories about nuclear sites that they have UFOs hovering over the base and they kind of flicker with, with a nuke system. Like, you know, they go active and then they go back to their state how they were before and then they flick them back on as, you know, so not Mel- Melmstrom Air Force Base, right? Yeah, they, right. You know, uh, Salas, he, Captain Salas, he, he says uh, they shut them all down, shut yeah. all 10 missiles down. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things, I guess. What and, and it seems to be only that it's nuclear weapons for some reason, which is kind of scary. But at the same time, if they're trying to stop us from killing ourselves, that would be a good thing. But um, yeah, it's definitely is, I guess, is Ohio kind of a hotbed for ufo activity other than like the actual air force base is is it kind of like a hot spot for ufos well uh, in my second book called victoria's secret truth it's a two-year case study of a family that's had contact uh victoria since childhood and uh, relatives that um with entities that she describes uh, variously as uh in tall insectoids um, uh, grays, both, you know, the small and the tall grays. And just north of Cincinnati was a place called Fernald. And Fernald is famous because it was the largest cleanup in the history of the EPA. Fernald was a plant that created nuclear products for nuclear weapons. And Fernald wound up putting over 1 million pounds of nuclear waste into the atmosphere, the water, and the ground. And Victoria grew up 
only several miles due east of that plant, which means that when the prevailing winds out of the west blew, it blew nuclear radiation over her home. And worse, her mother worked in that nuclear facility where it was proven that the workers were exposed to high levels of radiation while her mother was carrying Victoria in her belly. Now, yeah. Now, is it, and there are films that you can find on the internet that have been validated of a UFO hovering over that facility. It's a famous story. And so why wouldn't they be interested in somebody like Victoria and abducting her to see how maybe human beings are, are um, reacting to high levels of radiation and then make her part of the hybridization program to see, hmm, how does, how will that affect us? You know, should we stay away uh, from humans who have had this high exposure? So, so Ohio has had more than its share. Plus, we had nuclear facilities up in the Cleveland area. They're always buzzing those things. Sure. Uh, all up and down. And, and in my first book, um, I mean, in my second book, in Victoria's Secret Truth, I talk about all the nuclear facilities, all the way from all up and down I-75, from that Fernald plant, all the way up to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and all the sightings. That were all, you know, the UFOs were seeing the mound plant. I mean, this was just, you know, this South Central Ohio was so deep into the nuclear stuff. It was amazing. It's amazing they didn't land on our lawns. We had so much going here. Yeah. And all that's documented in Victoria's Secret Truth. Yeah, it's, yeah, it seems to be more, you'd see more action in those areas, especially when it comes to nuclear, any kind of material. Um, so it's kind of a weird thing. It, so, I mean, obviously, do you still have access to the base? Do you still go back and forth or are you, are you done with that now? Well, I have my retirees pass. Right. And um, I go on the base. I play golf. You know, it's COVID. So, yeah. you, you know, we stopped our travel. We used to try to get out for a week or two to Florida and, you know, visit relatives at different times of the year. But we've been trying to be as careful as we can and, and um, you know, just can that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, usually, and they close the gym. I used to be a gym rat. Mm-hmm. I'm a former marathoner. I ran 16 marathons, oh, uh, nice. two Bostons, including uh, in those, uh, dozens of other races. I was the wellness director uh, on the base for a couple of years. And my job was to improve the the wellness of all 10,000 civilians on the base. And I had to be a good example. So I was always in the gym working out and, you know, checking up on people that were in classes and just being available during, you know, my spare time, uh, that t- sort of thing. And uh, in fact, I just bought a set of those, uh, uh, you know, weights where you, uh, spin the dial and then, you know, a different way it appears. Yeah. Yeah. The adjustable. I just brought it home today. And I just said, cause the gym's closed. It's been like two years now. And I just (laughs) said, well, it could be four years. So I got a treadmill. I got a Nordic track. I've got other, you know, uh, resistant bands and tubes here. Uh, It's just like, here comes winter and, you know, I want to come out stronger. So yeah, I guess I haven't told the wife yet. She doesn't know they're, they're down (laughs) under the, under the pool table. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Maybe walking around with them Oh, yeah. Yeah, by the way, <laughs> by the way, I got some weights. Sorry. Really casual. Yeah. Like, oh, look at look at what look at what showed up in my hands. Yeah, it's. I mean, we got um, like you know, obviously we all work from home, so 
you know, during the day we're home all day, but I had to get one of those like under the desk ellipticals just to kind of stay busy. Like, I'm, you know, like I'm walking and stuff. Cause I mean, sitting here at the desk all day, every day, it, it gets kind of rough. So. Oh, it does. You know, anything you can do to stay in shape. It works. Get some resistance, get some resistance tubes and bands sure. and, and, you know, do, you can get different uh, tensions on them, you know, get, I get black ones, blue ones, whatever. And, the, and you can do a, a gym in a bag with those. You yeah. can really exercise a lot of stuff. And, and uh, that's, in fact, we had a program called gym in a bag. We had an expert come in and teach classes. And then their reward was they got a baggie with uh, an instruction booklet, which was printed and tubes and bands. And uh, a lot of people would then just work out at their desk, even, you know, pre COVID a decade ago, because if they were too busy to go to the gym, you know, you're just stretching out, you're watching, you're reading your email and you can work work out great stuff yeah 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 that's exactly what we do i have a set of dumbbells around here so we i'm on the elliptical when i'm not busy lift, doing some you know whatever but just trying to keep the blood pumping so uh it's good that's for all, you that's all that matters but yeah i mean so i guess kind of as we wind down here um how many books do you actually have out currently i have three books out um they're under the alien shades of grays Right. trilogy the first one that was 50 shades of grays i decided to change it to make it more in line with the topic inside because right. some people might be confused about that porno thing right. you know uh, so so yeah when i got the second book done we changed the franchise to alien shades of grays and um i need to uh do a short plug and you can sure. find it on Am- you can find it on Amazon right. and uh, just look up alien shades of grays UFO and, and I'll pop up or if my name shows up on your website, you yeah. know, Shemansky. But uh, in March, I am I've been invited to be a speaker at the UFO mega conference Ooh. and it's uh, March. Uh, I really need to memorize this. <laughs> it's, it's March 19th through the 27th at Bally's in Las Vegas and the rooms during the week are cheap. It's like 69 bucks a night for a room. If you, uh, you know, tell them you're doing the conference. And I think the two weekend nights might be 99 bucks, you know, goes up a little bit, but I'm going to be a speaker there. Um, I'm hoping they'll uh, also let me uh, maybe do a special session. You know, you like an extended session. So I'll be there. Um, The schedule, you can find it when it comes out, just, you know, Google UFO Megacon. Right. And it probably won't show up until probably mid to late January because they're, excuse me. Yeah. They're still signing everyone the contracts. But if I can uh, tell you, your audience, why I think this is great. I was a speaker there a couple of years ago. They treated everybody like gold. They want the speakers to mingle with the crowd. So when they have uh, two banquets, uh, dinners that you know we get to go to they don't want us sitting with our researcher buddies they want one researcher <laughs> per table and they want you know to, you to break bread with the people who paid the money to come through the door so that's the first thing i loved about them the second thing is is unlike most conferences where a guy will give a talk or a gal will give a talk and then they disappear maybe to the expo and do books for mm-hmm. an hour or two and you never see them again you could walk into the uh, lecture hall at any one time and find 10 speakers sitting in a chair, uh, supporting and listening to the other speakers. It was just super unique that way. And I thought, this is great because, you know, then there's a break and then people see you in the crowd and they want to talk to you. I found it to be a superior experience, um, you know, 
just it was just fantastic. So love to see you all out there. I don't know what they're charging to get through the door, but it's a lot of days. You know, that's like nine days or something. There's going to be a lot of speakers and workshops and a lot. There's a lot of big names there. And I know I'm not one, but that's okay. Uh, I've got a unique thing. I'm going to be doing an extended talk on Swamp Gas My Ass. And that's the (laughs) that's the latest book. That's the third book. And it is the true story of the 1966 Michigan Swamp Gas UFO. I got a pilot to break his silence after 55 years and tell me his story. And I have all of his military records and I have the uh, memoirs of the guy who flew with them that day to corroborate the story. So it's a uh, swamp gas. My ass is the last book in alien shades of gray's uh, trilogy. Right. So that, that can be found on Amazon. Do you, this, so does the website, does, does, you know, do those carry your books as well? Or is that just kind of a, like information wise or anything like that? I have a very minimalistic website because I don't right. make my living uh, doing this. I just sure. have a place where people can drop me a message if they can't find me. They, they don't know my my email is itsaufo at yahoo.com. That basically says it's a UFO at yahoo.com and they can email me and I generally get back to people, you know, unless it's something crazy, you know, in a couple of days. For sure. Yeah, so we'll we'll actually have all the links for the books down in the description as well as the email address and the website if anybody wants to go to it. Um, also, be looking out. I'll actually have links to the UFO Mega Conference as well. Um, so beautiful, anybody, and I can send you some material. Sure, sure. Yeah, we can always put it up there in the show notes, um, and even when we add the promos and everything, we can go ahead and put that out. But um, March nineteenth to the twenty seventh in Vegas, um, UFO at Dally's. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Valley's uh, UFO mega conference in March of next year. Um, so we'll have all those links listed down below uh, for everybody to take a look at with the websites and the email address as well. Um, everybody pick up a book. Uh, that would be great. Uh, Mr. Zemanski, I really appreciate your time, sir. Like I mentioned, you could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a real yeah. pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot more. <laughs> I can guarantee it. Um, For everybody else, I appreciate you guys stopping in. Uh, Everybody that's been watching this live on YouTube. uh, I got to all your questions. Hopefully everybody, uh, for the most part, is out here in Texas. Um, Brunson's out there in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, How's it going, everybody? So everybody, make sure you guys stop in. We'll have this episode up and running. I want to say tomorrow, edited with all the show notes and links and everything so everybody can check out the books and the websites. Um, If you guys... Are watching us on youtube um, make sure you guys hit the subscribe button if you aren't already a subscriber uh, hit that like button and the bell icon so you guys don't miss an episode in the future um, if you're catching us or you want to catch us on the go uh, as i mentioned before spotify google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio at truth defender podcast all of our links to our social media will be down below as well uh, like i just mentioned we just got tiktok up and running for advertisement as well um, and if you guys want to shoot us an email for whatever reason you want to ask our guest a question or myself uh, topic recommendations, you can shoot us an email at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. I really appreciate you guys. Uh, next week is Thanksgiving, so I'm not sure if we'll have anything set up for next week. Um, but you guys can shoot me an email or anything if you guys want to chat about something. Um, so if you guys, we don't see you guys next week. Everybody have a safe Thanksgiving. Uh, everybody stay safe out there, stay blessed, and most of all, stay frosty. Mm-hmm.